Good morning. In today's headlines, government censorship, collusion with big tech and cover-ups. An alarming new House report casts a concerning shadow on a government agency. Audio recording of former President Trump discussing classified information released by CNN. Find out how Trump reacted and what's next in the classified documents case. Presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis lays out his first major policy since announcing his run. The Florida governor was in southern Texas talking about immigration. China voiced support for Russia after the Wagner mutiny. How will this affect the war in Ukraine and the rest of the world? We bring you in-depth analysis. Is your smart TV safe? TV experts say they are among the most hackable devices on the market. We have tips how to protect yourself. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today's Tuesday, June 27th, and President Biden and Rus Russian President Vladimir Putin spoke out for the first time after recent chaos in Russia. Yes, and in Putin's speech, another twist in the saga. Putin had said organizers of the rebellion will be brought to justice. But before that, he said the Wagner leader Prigozhin would be given amnesty. Right. And you know what's an X factor in all of this? China. Yes, yes, that's right. And stay tuned for my interview with China analyst Bradley Thayer for some eye-opening insight on how China's support for Russia could affect security across the globe. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second half of the show. But first, government censorship of Americans is also in the spotlight today. The House Weaponization Committee says a government agency was directly involved in the censorship and used third parties to carry it out. Entity's Daniel Monaghan has more on the concerning report. The committee says it obtained documents that show that the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, surveilled American speech. The aim was to monitor all so-called disinformation on social media. The report says the agency also colluded with big tech and government-funded third parties to carry out the censorship. Our government built a cozy relationship with big tech. That was reportedly necessary to get around the First Amendment, which prohibits such censorship. To do that, the report says CISA used portals which funneled misinformation reports from the government directly to social media platforms. Twitter Files journalist Michael Schellenberger reacted at a weaponization hearing. Today, American taxpayers are unwittingly financing the growth and power of a censorship industrial complex run by America's scientific and technological elite, which endangers our liberties and democracy. The report also says big tech executives advised CISA and encouraged its unconstitutional behavior. And that's not all. The report also alleges cover-ups. It says CISA scrubbed its website of references to domestic misinformation and disinformation to cover its tracks. The report says that labeling speech misinformation does not strip its First Amendment protection, adding that the framers of the Constitution didn't carve out a First Amendment exception for false speech as they knew how dangerous making the government the one who decides what's true and what's not was. The report also called attention to CISA's focus on so-called malinformation. That's factual information provided without adequate context. Context as determined by the government. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The report also says that CISA moved its censorship activities to CISA-funded nonprofit. This after the agency and the Biden administration were sued in federal court for alleged First Amendment violations. The report adds that CISA wanted to use the nonprofit as a mouthpiece to avoid the appearance of government propaganda. 
And now, some developments in former President Trump's classified documents case. A federal judge rejected a request from special counsel Jack Smith yesterday. Smith asked for the list of witnesses Trump is ordered not to communicate with to be kept secret. The judge also set a hearing date to decide how classified materials will be handled in the case, and CNN released the audio recordings used in Smith's indictment. That's of Trump discussing secret documents he did not declassify in 2021. And today's Jeremy Sandberg reports. The recording obtained and released by CNN includes what prosecutors consider a critical piece of evidence in Smith's indictment of Trump over alleged mishandling of classified documents. The two-minute conversation comes from a July 2021 interview Trump gave for people working on the memoir of his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Yeah. As president, I couldn't have deed less. Yeah. Uh, now I can't, you know, but this is yeah, classified. Now, now we have a problem. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. It's so cool. I mean, it's so, I'm, look, we here and I have a, and you probably almost didn't believe me, but now you believe me. No, it's, I believe It's you. incredible. The special counsel's indictment alleges a writer, publisher, and two of Trump's staff members were shown classified information about the plan of attack on Iran. Trump said in a recent interview he was holding newspapers and magazine clippings when speaking about classified source material. Trump reacted on Truth Social by saying the CNN release was illegally leaked and spun and that the recording actually clears him of any wrongdoing. He called it a continuation of a witch hunt and equated it to election interference. A Trump campaign spokesman responded by calling it a Democrat DOJ hoax, saying the audio tape provides context proving, once again, that President Trump did nothing wrong. The recording is one of two instances referred to in the indictment where prosecutors alleged Trump showed classified information to people without security clearances. U.S. District Judge Eileen Cannon rejected a request from special counsel Jack Smith on Monday to keep a list of potential witnesses secret. Trump has been ordered not to communicate directly with witnesses about the case other than through his lawyers. The Trump appointee said prosecutors failed to explain why the names had to be kept secret or why redacting or partially sealing the document wouldn't be enough. Cannon also set a hearing date to discuss the handling of classified materials in the case for June 14th. Trump's defense team has until next Thursday to respond to the proposed trial schedule requested by the Justice Department. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis says he'll continue construction of the border wall, give more enforcement power to individual states and more. The governor laid out his immigration policy yesterday for the first time. Here's the story. Uh, but this impacts communities all throughout this country. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in southern Texas on Monday, addressing the immigration crisis. This is his first major policy statement since he announced his run for president. The governor says he plans to tackle immigration his first day in office, if elected. DeSantis is advocating for the use of military force to fight Mexican drug cartels smuggling human beings, fentanyl, and more into the country. And if someone was breaking into your house, you would repel them with the use of force, right? But yet if they have drugs, these backpacks, and they're going in and they're cutting through uh, an enforced structure, we're just supposed to let them in? You know, I say use force to repel them. According to DeSantis, the border is under the control of Mexican drug cartels, something he vows to fight against. We will designate them uh, either a transnational criminal organization, foreign terrorist organization, Chip and I are talking about. Bottom line is we're going to give them a designation so that we can unleash more federal power uh, to be able to kneecap the cartels. Immigration is set to be a major topic in the 2024 presidential election. 
A new poll by the Associated Press shows that six out of 10 Americans disagree with President Biden's handling of the border. Former President Trump over the weekend campaigned by promoting the 300 miles of border wall he constructed during his presidency. DeSantis, meanwhile, commented on the fact that the wall is incomplete. You got to finish the job and there's a lot more you got to do on that. DeSantis also promises to end the so-called catch and release policy. The rule currently allows for the release of illegal immigrants into the country until their court dates. If they come and know what will be happening is they'll get a sheet of paper saying come up for a court date in three years and just go enjoy the United States, well then they're going to do that. If they come and they're not, if they're denied entry or if they're immediately repatriated, well guess what, people are not going to want to mess with this. DeSantis says he'll also reinstitute the Remain in Mexico policy and promises to end birthright citizenship. However, a new NBC poll shows the Florida governor trailing far behind Trump, with 22% for DeSantis and over 50% for Trump. We're staying with the southern border crisis in the past two weeks. Four of President Biden's top border officials have quietly resigned, bringing the total up to seven in recent months. So what's going on? We're bringing in Rodney Scott. He served as the 24th U.S. Border Patrol chief. Good morning, Rodney. I want to start with this. John Tien, Raul Ortiz, Tay Johnson, and Chris uh, Magnus, they all renounced that they will resign in the last two weeks. Why now? What do you think is going on? Yeah, the border being in total chaos, it's exhausting for those leaders. So some of the leaders you highlighted are career uh, professionals, uh, Chief Ortiz, for example. He's not a political appointee. Uh, he's under a law enforcement retirement structure where he could retire at any time after 25 years in service. So he's kind of been on borrowed time. Several of the other leaders within CBP are, are in the same boat because we, we tend to hire in waves. Uh, but uh, Commissioner Magus, completely different story. Uh, he was hired from the outside. He was a political appointee. And from all accounts within CBP, his leadership was disastrous. Um, he, he's been gone for a little while. Um, but you, you just can't maintain good people. Uh, you're going to burn them out when you have such a chaotic situation like this is on the border. Uh, and these people signed up to enforce the federal law, and they don't feel like they're doing that. And I think it's important to touch on uh, what they said as well. What, what reason did they give that they, that, for the resignation? Yeah, so for the most part, again, back to CBP, Kari Huffman, he's the acting deputy commissioner. Uh, Raul Ortiz, they're both well into uh, retirement eligibility. Uh, I think Kari's been like 38 years, so they've both uh, been talking about retiring for a while. Uh, the deputy secretary, I think he said he wanted to spend more time with his family. Uh, that's a little bit more political. Um, I, I won't speculate on their specific reasons, but and then Tate Johnson as well. But when you see this many uh, back to back, you know that people just aren't loving their jobs every single day or they'd fight to stay in there. Good point. Um, and you just mentioned it. Reports are pointing to it as well that uh, at the border situation. But it seems like border crossings are lower after Title 42 and many see it as a breakthrough at the border. Can you just give us more insight into what is currently happening at the moment at the border and an update? Yeah, first, don't get distracted by this administration's talking points. 3,000 a day, about 3,500 a day is what the Border Patrol is still dealing with not to mention how many they're putting through the ports of entry. That is an excessive number that still gives the cartel control. Uh, for context, uh, go back to the 2015 through 2020, uh, the average per, per day throughout those years never exceeded more than 1,200, and that included some spikes in, tw in 2019. Um, this, 
This chaos on the border is unsustainable. It really, Title 42 is a distraction. You have to have consequences. The governor mentioned it in your, in your last piece. When people are gonna to continue to be released into the United States, they're gonna to continue to come. That gives the cartel these distractions to, to overwhelm law enforcement so they control the border. If people know they're, they're not gonna get released into the United States until they get their day in court, that's what Remain in Mexico was, they will stop coming because the majority of these asylum claims are fraudulent. Uh, and they're, the cartels are using them to overwhelm Border Patrol so they can bring fentanyl, heroin, cocaine, everything else into this country. Mm. Well, thank you so much for putting things into perspective here. Rodney Scott, I appreciate it. Thank you. You have a great morning. From Homeland Security to Justice, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy seems to open an impeachment inquiry for Attorney General Merrick Garland. This is over IRS whistleblower allegations that the DOJ meddled in the Hunter Biden investigation. And today's Melina Wisecup has the details for us. So Speaker McCarthy directly said that if these allegations by the IRS whistleblowers are true, they will be a significant part of a larger impeachment inquiry into Merrick Garland's weaponization of DOJ. So he posted that just yesterday on Twitter, along with a screenshot from one of those whistleblowers' attorneys. A few whistleblowers testified before Congress behind closed doors last week, laying out evidence of what they say appears to be the DOJ having handled Hunter Biden's case differently than they would have an average American. Here's how chairman of the Ways and Means Committee puts it. 2.2 million in unreported tax on global income streams to Mr. Biden and his associates from Ukraine, Romania, and China. Attorneys for Biden were made aware prior to any search, providing them valuable time to remove any materials that could be useful evidence. Few Americans qualify for such soft glove treatment from federal investigators. Another allegation is that U.S. Attorney David Weiss asked to have this case carried out here in D.C., but he was denied. He then asked the DOJ to provide him a special counsel, which would have given him more authority over this case. That request was also denied. Speaker McCarthy saying last week before leaving the Capitol that this raises questions. Watch. And what did they, what did they do during this? Um, did they withhold information? Did they advise him ahead of time? Did they treat him much different? Another allegation that the GOP is highlighting is a comment made by Weiss. He said, quote, I'm not the deciding official on whether charges are filed. Now, this comment by Weiss was just backed up with the publicization of the internal IRS email. Now, this all conflicts with the testimony that Attorney General Merrick Garland gave to Congress. Back in April, he told Congress members that Weiss was, had the ultimate authority in this Hunter Biden case. All of these inconsistencies are ultimately what led up to Speaker McCarthy saying that there is a possibility for this impeachment inquiry into Garland. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. All right, and the White House responded to talk of impeachment proceedings against Garland yesterday. Here's White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. The president respects uh, the, uh, the Department of Justice independence. Uh, it res he respects the rule of law. And that is what you're going to see under this administration. So I'm not going to speak uh, uh, to, uh, to any, any, anything uh, that is uh, related to that. And then Jean-Pierre shifted the topic back to Bidenomics during her, the rest of her answers. Yeah, she says that Biden is more focused on things like the economy and other priorities of the American people. 
And coming up, the summer break is coming, but first the Supreme Court has some big decisions to make. We take a look at some key cases. And a new report says public schools have seen a massive increase in sexual abuse. NTD spoke with a Defense of Freedom Institute spokesperson about the findings after the break. Welcome back. Another matter that we're looking at this week is Supreme Court decisions. That's right. The Supreme Court is gearing up for some big decisions over the next week before the justices begin their summer break. One highly anticipated case is on affirmative action in higher education. The Supreme Court previously approved its application, but two related cases could reverse those rulings. The court will also decide on President Biden's plan to reduce or wipe away student loans held by millions of Americans. Another case involves religious accommodations for employees. It centers around a former postal worker who objected to working on Sundays as a Christian. In a case with First Amendment implications, an evangelical Christian with a web design company is challenging a Colorado law. The law prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation. The web designers are opposed to gay marriage. And to dig deeper into two of these topics, our reporter Jack Bradley spoke with Jim Burling, VP of Legal Affairs at Pacific Legal Foundation. So we have uh, many cases unfolding with the high court. Uh, affirmative action and student loan forgiveness are among them. What do you think the ruling will be in these cases? I think the administration is going to lose in the student loan case because the congressional authority is just lacking for the president to forgive $400 billion in loans. And on affirmative action, I think the court is going to take to heart what Justice Roberts has said in the past, that is, the way to stop discrimination is to stop discriminating. I think it's going to be a closer opinion. I think it's going to be more fractured, more difficult for the court to have a unitary ruling. And so for the affirmative action cases, um, do you think that a lot are saying that the whites and uh, Asian students are put at a disadvantage because of affirmative action. Why are they saying this? Well, they're saying that because statistically, if you look at the grades, if you look at the SATs, uh, certain minority students have a tremendous advantage of getting in. I mean, Harvard itself admitted during the proceedings below that African-American students basically race is a decisive factor for 45% of the admissions of African-American students. If you look at the SAT scores, Asians would have to score well above they do to have the same admission rates, or I should put it another way, uh, a black in the lower two-fifths of the applicant pool has a better chance of getting in than an Asian-American in the top of the pool. So there's definitely discrimination going on based on race, which is why many people are saying it is unacceptable under a constitution that guarantees equality. If affirmative action is repealed by the Supreme Court in these cases, what will be the impacts? Will it affect um, diversity programs in companies? It will certainly affect diversity in companies that receive federal contracts that are federal, that are subject to federal discrimination laws, which is a lot of them. Uh, but I think also when we talk about the students, it could not hurt the students who do not get into the Harvards of their choice, but get into other schools. We've seen a number of cases where statistics have shown that students that get into a school that they're really below their weight, their punching weight, that there's, they're really not qualified compared to other students, they don't do as well. They don't have as good graduation rates. 
They don't have as much uh, graduation from the sciences and math courses and, and majors. So it could be doing those students a favor by having them go to schools that they're more inclined or they're more likely to do well. And as far as the student loan forgiveness case, um, if that actually, if the Supreme Court sinks that one, what will be the impacts there? Well, the impact mainly is going to be that students will have to pay back the loans that they took out. They borrowed money and they will have to pay that back. Now, it also, down the line, may require students to think a little bit more hard about what kind of loans they take out. Uh, taking out a loan for an art history major uh, may be less advantageous than taking the same loan out to major in business administration. So it could force students to look more carefully at expending the debt because there's nobody going to be coming in to help forgive that debt unless Congress were wanting to do that. And Congress doesn't seem inclined itself to forgive student debt. Well, there's lots to look forward to in the coming week. Uh, Jim Burling, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Regardless of the outcome of these cases, loan payments that have been on hold since the start of the pandemic three years ago are set to resume this summer. Prosecutors will seek the death penalty for Brian Koberger. Koberger is accused of killing four University of Idaho students at an off-campus home last fall. The prosecutor says the suspect exhibited an utter disregard for human life. The case captured the nation's attention and left the community living in fear before Kohlberger's arrest. The criminal justice student was arrested at his parents' home in Pennsylvania almost seven weeks after the killings. Authorities linked Kohlberger to the crime through biological material found on a leather knife sheath. They developed a family tree of hundreds of relatives using DNA analysis eventually hitting on Koberger. A major increase in sexual abuse over the past decade in public schools. That's according to a recent report by the Defense of Freedom Institute. Entity's Daniel Monahan spoke with Angela Morabito from the Institute about what's behind the rise. The report titled Catching the Trash is based on federal data from 2015 to 2018 for nearly 100,000 schools across the U.S. Researchers found a 74% increase in rape or attempted rape, while sexual assault complaints in K-12 schools more than tripled from 2010 to 2019. Morabito says one of the problems is teacher unions. Which routinely go to bat for the worst of the worst teachers, and they abandon teachers who are just trying to do a good job. Uh, teacher unions have repeatedly advocated for policies that would uh, require a teacher's record to be wiped a few years after they leave a specific district, and that enables a phenomenon called pass the trash, where let's say an abusive teacher uh, is, is forced out of District A, uh, they go to get hired at District B, District B has no insight into what happened at District A, and unknowingly hires an abuser. Another issue that Morabito cites is a lack of transparency. DFI believes that every school district in America should report to the public every year uh, how many instances of staff on student sexual misconduct ha have occurred. Uh, anything less than that really leaves parents in the dark. And when we talk about school choice, parents need to make informed choices. They should have all of the relevant information about where their child is going to school. And, and student safety is perhaps the most relevant information of all. 
With such a huge spike in reports of staff on student sexual assault in K through 12 schools, Morabito says one would expect to see just as large, if not even more, of a spike in investigations at the federal level. But instead of that, it looks a lot like the Office for Civil Rights, which is part of the Department of Education, has dropped the ball and is not aggressively enforcing Title IX the way that former Education Secretary DeVos did. For Morabito, the issue is cut and dry. Every child should be safe at school and no parent should have to, to worry uh, that, that the person who is entrusted with the education of their child may end up being an abuser. The Defense of Freedom Institute is also calling for penalizing school districts who help abusers find new jobs and employees who fail to report sexual misconduct by another employee. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. What a shame. Something needs to be done about that. NTD reached out to the Department of Education and the National Education Association for comment on the increase in sexual assaults at schools. We have not heard back yet. And still to come, President Biden and President Putin both spoke out yesterday for the first time after the short-lived mutiny in Russia over the weekend. And China is supporting Russia following the uprising. How will this affect the U.S., Taiwan, and the rest of the world? Stay tuned for some important insights from an expert. The stories that need to be told, the voices that need to be heard, the truth you need to see. Get unbiased and in-depth news. Don't miss a beat. I'm Stephanie Cox. At NTD, we're here for you. What is China like, really? Is it defined by its giant economy, an oppressive government, or its people? By the worst persecutors or the most courageous freedom fighters? We're lifting the veil to look at global impacts and how close the regime is to your doorstep. From eyewitnesses and analysts, get the facts. Here on China in Focus. Welcome back and good morning again. President Biden, as well as Russian President Vladimir Putin, spoke out yesterday for the first time after the short-lived mutiny in Russia this weekend. And today's Iris Tao was at the White House. And President Biden on Monday tried to distance the United States from a mercenary revolt that happened in Russia this weekend, insisting that the U.S. and the West had nothing to do with it. We gave Putin no excuse to blame this on the West or to blame this on NATO. We had nothing to do with it. This was part of a struggle within the Russian system. At a Monday event at the White House, President Biden said he talked to Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky to assure him of U.S. support and that he's also keeping in touch with U.S. allies to make sure that we're on the same page and continue to monitor the situation. But when it comes to what's next, President Biden said... But it's still too early to reach a definitive conclusion about where this is going. The Monday remarks mark the first time that President Biden has publicly spoken out after a mercenary group in Russia launched a revolt this past weekend. But the rebellion was short-lived as the boss of the mercenary group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, allegedly reached a deal with the Kremlin to pull back his troops in exchange for amnesty. In an audio message on Monday, Prigozhin says he halted their march to Moscow to avoid bloodshed, adding that it was meant to be a protest, not an attempt to overthrow the regime. 
Дорогие друзья. The Russian president Vladimir Putin on Monday said that it was a colossal threat meant to weaken the country, adding that he will bring to justice the organizers of the rebellion. It's too early to speculate on the impact these events might have. The White House on Monday echoed President Biden's message that they don't know where this Wagner incident would go next. But China, meanwhile, explicitly voiced support for Russia on Sunday, saying that it supports its efforts in maintaining national stability. The White House, in response, said that it has told China and other countries to not provide any help to Russia's war machine. Reporting from the White House, Aris Tao, NTD News. And a Russian-registered jet linked to Yevgeny Prigozhin arrived in Belarus. Flight Radar 24 showed the business jet flew from southern Russia to Belarus early Tuesday. How will Beijing's support for Russia following the Wagner mutiny affect the world? What should the U.S. do in response? We hear more on this from an analyst. Joining us now for some discussion is Bradley Thayer, Director of China Policy at the Center for Security Policy and co-author of Understanding the China Threat. Bradley, it's so great to have you with us today. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to join you. Would you consider the uprising a vulnerability for President Putin? And what does this mean for the Chinese regime leader Xi Jinping and what some are calling the global axis of authoritarianism? Well, uh, it, it was an extremely important event. Um, Progosian's uh, mutiny against uh, the uh, Russian military, uh, purportedly, but indirectly, of course, and the true target was uh, Vladimir Putin's rule. So even though it was aborted, uh, Putin is greatly weakened by that event. And from China's perspective, Xi Jinping must be wondering if it's time for regime change uh, in Moscow. Uh, maybe it's time to swap horses and find another Russian leader who's going to more effectively uh, serve China's interests uh, in Russia uh, rather than uh, Vladimir Putin uh, because of Putin's weakness uh, as a result of the events of the last uh, few days uh, in Russia. So it was a major development, not only in Russia, but for the direct implication on the Sino-Russian relationship which had been very good because President Xi Jinping in China was getting what he wanted. And that was Russia was a very useful tool uh, to advance Chinese influence and to serve as a supplicant to uh, Chinese uh, influences. Now, given Putin, that Putin has weakened uh, by these events, uh, it may be time, certainly, that the Chinese leadership is thinking it may be time for him to go. And the critical question there is, is there somebody that they have lined up to whom they could turn uh, more effectively? And that is a fascinating perspective that you mentioned there, Bradley. And analysts say China Xi has a great deal to lose if Russia is humiliated in Ukraine as Beijing pushes its influence in Asia and as their own rest in Russia is said to create a risk of conflict among these former Soviet states in China's backyard. How will China's support for Russia following the insurrection of the Wagner Group against Moscow affect the world? Uh, it will have a, a tremendously significant effect on the rest of the world uh, and on the war uh, in Ukraine. Uh, it is uh, Xi Jinping himself who's laboring uh, to uh, continue the conflict, in essence, by backing Putin so heavily uh, in his war uh, in Ukraine. If China did not support Putin, uh, the likelihood that uh, that war would brought, be brought to a peaceful conclusion is much higher. But far more worsenly, from the standpoint, if you will, of global stability, is that while the West's attention is focused on 
uh, Ukraine and the humanitarian disaster which is occurring there, uh, the, Taiwan remains tremendously vulnerable to invasion, to attack uh, by, um, uh, by China. Bradley, I want to ask, what should the U.S. do in response to the mutiny and China's reaction to it? Well, what the U.S. should do, of course, is uh, take measures not just to condemn it, which they certainly should do, uh, but to take military measures to ensure that uh, we're able to uh, ensure that we have the right military capability in the Indo-Pacific uh, to deter uh, China's aggression against Taiwan or against other states, uh, allies or, or partners uh, in that uh, region. We need to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Yes, uh, Ukraine is a humanitarian disaster, and it has become a focus of national, U.S. national security policy and NATO's uh, policy. But we cannot drop the, uh, avert our gaze from what's happening in the Indo-Pacific. And so um, that's absolutely essential. We don't have the right tools in place. We don't have the right architecture in the Indo-Pacific. And we need to labor uh, far more actively than the Biden administration has done uh, to place it there so that there is an, an, an uh, ability uh, to deter China's aggression against Taiwan. I understand your call to action that you're making here. Very important. Bradley Thayer, Director of China Policy at the Center for Security Policy. It is great hearing your analysis. Thank you. It was my pleasure to join you. And now to some short headlines from around the world. A German court found former Audi chairman Rupert Stadler guilty of fraud. That's in connection with Volkswagen's diesel emission scandal. The vehicles were equipped with software that cheated on emissions tests and made the cars look less polluting. Pre-monsoon rains in Pakistan killed at least 13 people over the last two days. Government officials attribute the deaths so far to lightning strikes and collapsed roofs. Heavy rain is forecast in parts of the country until the end of the month. The country's monsoon season usually runs from early July until mid-September. Italy is outraged after a man was filmed carving his and his girlfriend's names onto the walls of the Colosseum. The incident has sparked a police investigation. The vandal could face fines of over $16,000 and up to a year in jail if caught. Coming up, we have some updates on the severe weather in the U.S. And the CDC has issued a warning about five cases of malaria. The agency says the cases were transmitted locally. And Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene suspects someone was trying to hack into her smart TV. Experts say smart TVs are among the most hackable devices on the market. How can you protect yourself? It's good to have you back. It's 20 minutes before 8, and let's take a quick look at the weather at this point. The extreme heat surrounding parts of the southern U.S. is spreading. Forecasters say some areas could set heat records, and these blazing temperatures could stick around for the July 4th holiday. The heat wave that's been hovering over Texas isn't showing signs of cooling off. The Weather Prediction Center says some parts of the state will have the most significant heat of the season so far. Roughly 45 million people from Arizona to Alabama are under excessive heat warnings or advisories today. And cities across the southern U.S. are forecast to see triple-digit temperatures this week.
The heat wave is also causing havoc with some power grids. The North American Energy Reliability Corporation says much of the countries west of the Mississippi could see blackouts from surges in demand. More than 90 afternoon high temperature records could be set from Texas to the Mississippi Valley and parts of Florida over the next six days. Also in the southern U.S., the CDC has issued a warning about five cases of malaria. There were four cases in Florida and one in Texas. The agency says the cases were transmitted locally, which hasn't happened in 20 years. The disease is typically contracted overseas, where malaria is more common. Malaria is caused by a parasite that spreads through mosquito bites. Infected people can suffer fever, chills, and flu-like illness. If it goes untreated, infected people can develop severe complications and die. Health officials are warning doctors, especially those in southern states, to be aware of the possibility of infection. The CDC says people who were diagnosed receive treatment and are improving. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is pushing back against Disney. He filed a motion in federal court yesterday to request a lawsuit against him be dismissed. Disney's lawsuit accuses the Florida governor and presidential candidate of waging a campaign of government retaliation against them. DeSantis claims to have immunity in his motion. His attorneys say the federal district the lawsuit was filed in doesn't have jurisdiction. Disney filed its lawsuit in the U.S. District Court in North Florida instead of in state court. The state says it's DeSantis-appointed board members enforcing changes to Disney's district. The board's attorneys filed a motion asking for the federal case to be dismissed or held until a counter-lawsuit in state court is resolved. And what's more, Disney continues to suffer financial woes. A box office analyst says the company has lost hundreds of millions of dollars on its new films. Here's that story. Box office analyst Valiant Renegade estimated in a recent YouTube video that Disney Corporation has lost a staggering $890 million on its last eight films. They include highly anticipated releases, The Little Mermaid and Elemental. According to reports, Elemental has become the lowest grossing debut ever for Disney's opening weekend, making just $29 million. Valiant Renegade also noted that multiple Disney blockbusters in the past year have lost money or barely broken even. The films they're putting out just aren't reaching the same audiences that they used to, even while other studios like Universal and Paramount are still generating massive legitimate blockbusters. Disney continues to miss the mark from every studio that they have, and they're not even done yet for this year. Valiant added the studio could see more losses, up to $1 billion. That's because these same titles will go to the Disney Plus streaming service, rather than the top streamers such as Netflix and Amazon Prime Video, where more revenue would be possible. Disney's recent box office flops come as the company faces other financial problems. Current CEO Bob Iger has been working to eliminate $5.5 billion in spending with the layoff of some 7,000 workers globally. The company's stock plummeted 44% last year, its worst year in five decades. This next one is quite the story. A cleaning worker in Troy, New York made a costly mistake when he shut down a freezer holding decades of scientific research. The worker is accused of turning off the circuit breaker in an attempt to stop what he called an annoying beeping sound. It was the alarm from the freezer which had stopped working properly. 
The material inside the freezers were damaged or destroyed when the temperature rose. The university filed a lawsuit against their third-party cleaning service. It argues their negligence resulted in the loss of 25 years' worth of research. The lab estimated damages to exceed $1 million. Wow, 25 years of research has gone like that. Oh, man, that is terrible. You know, I did some research in college working on soil science, and it does take a lot of work to get those results. Oh, for sure, yeah. You don't I, want them gone just like that. No, yeah, I understand. I follow my mom to the lab a lot. She's a biologist, and she would cry for that, I oh, think. really? Wow. She would have felt this one. Yeah. Anyway, now to a common item many have in their households. The FBI says smart TVs are not very secure. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene suspects someone was trying to hack into her smart TV. Over the weekend, she tweeted that it, be, it turned on by itself and showed someone's laptop trying to connect to it. What are the dangers and how can you protect yourself? Entity's fake quarter finds out. The FBI says that smart TVs are more vulnerable to cyber attacks in comparison to smartphones and computers. The FBI says that smart TV manufacturers don't make them as secure. Allowing cyber criminals to have access to the camera that's built into the TV, the microphone that's built into the TV or your remote, um, access to the applications that reside in the memory inside of the TV. All of those things can be controlled and manipulated. Scott Schober is a cybersecurity expert at Berkeley Veritronics Systems. He says these criminals can know your IP address, where you live, and the content you're consuming. If you're watching something inappropriate, they can use that to blackmail you. But despite these dangers, Schober himself uses a smart TV. He says keeping it secure is relatively simple. Make sure you set it up with a long, strong password. Make sure your Wi-Fi network has strong password, user ID. Perhaps I recommend don't broadcast your SSID. The other thing is make sure that your, your, your Wi-Fi router and your network is configured with some level of encryption. WPA3, WPA2 are both strong encryption standards. Routers have encryption built in, but sometimes you have to turn it on through your computer. Encryption may slow down your internet connection, but it's completely vulnerable when not encrypted. Fake Order, NTD News. Experts say that smart TVs are among the most hackable devices on the market. If you own one that's over three years old, tech specialists say you might want to disconnect it from the internet and turn it into a dumb TV. Oh, wow, that's interesting. You know, and you gotta change those passwords, but it's just such a hassle sometimes. I never remember them. <laughs> There's no chance. <laughs> All right, coming ahead, an ancient craft of carpet making still continues today. And a competition to carry your wife through an obstacle course. We have that story after the break. Welcome back. Artisans in Armenia are making carpets by hand. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more on how they are reviving the ancient craft. Armenian carpets are known for their quality and durability. The tradition dates to the 7th century. Today, artisans continue to create carpets by hand, starting with picking up flowers and herbs to dye the threads. Then they're boiled to get the right color for the dye. For weaving a rug, we use wool, warp and weft wool, and the pile wool. And the, the wool, we dye with vegetable dyes. 
and we use uh, indigo, we use uh, cochineal, we use uh, uh, pomegranate, uh, we use onion. An ethnic Armenian from Turkey, Oltasi founded Woolway three years ago. He spent most of his life in France and the United States, but he recently came to Armenia to help the locals revive the ancient craft. Most of the people here, they left already. There is not uh, artisans left. Uh, everybody's in Europe and United States or Canada. And it's better to start here again, to teach them again from zero the culture and uh, how to make rugs. Both dyeing and weaving are time-consuming and labor-intensive processes. A large carpet takes three to four months to weave. Starting from the dyeing of threads, this is already quite a long process because the threads must undergo a treatment before being dyed, so it takes more than 10 days to get all the colors necessary to make the full carpet. A woman can weave one square meter of carpet in a month or even longer. The carpets are made of sheep and goat wool. It was believed that goat hair could protect homes from scorpions and snakes. Now, most of the carpets are exported or sold to visiting tourists. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Wow, Evelyn, all that hard work really pays off. It's such a beautiful, rich product in the end. Yeah, it looks like you need so much, well, you need to be so good with your hands. And two to three, three to four months, I think she said. Yeah. Incredible patience. It is, it is really intricate. Mm. And now we're turning to Canada, where brave couples competed in a wife-carrying contest over the weekend. Husband team members have to carry their wives through an obstacle course. Eric Bleda of Ukraine and Anna Stankovic of Russia competed in the course in the fastest time and were awarded Stankovic's weight in beer, which is over 100 pounds. The wife-carrying contest has its origins in Finland. That's such a sweet challenge, but you probably have to be really strong, either that or just really light. <laughs> Would you take up the challenge? Oh, well, I'm, I'm up for it. You know, I, I've, uh, I've seen like they have the hurdles, you know, in gym class, so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I would be too, but I have a feeling our answers might differ if you're asking my, uh, my husband instead. I see. Anyway, <laughs> that's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. That's our email address. If you want to write us with feedback or any other ideas you might have, thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.